0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey
1: everybody, it's the big countdown to the conference. Less than two weeks before the big two days of Broadway superpowers telling you how they got to where they are. Hope you'll join us. Visit theproducersperspective.com. There is literally one day left to save a hundred bucks. Go to theproducersperspective.com and register for the conference today.
0: I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be...
1: Hello, everybody. My name is Ken Davenport. We are back here with another episode of the Producers Perspective podcast. And we're heading back to the business side of Broadway today and talking to one of the general managers that I respect the most. He's also a producer as well. That's one of the reasons why I respect him so much, because he wears both hats. Please welcome to the podcast, Mr. Carl Passberg. Welcome, Carl. Uh, Thank you. Good to be here. So Carl has GM'd a whole bunch of big Broadway shows like Memphis, Guys and Dolls, First Date, The Illusionist, In Transit, and most recently, that show that no one's ever heard from, Come From Away. He's also a producer on Come From Away as well. Carl, so which came first for you, the love of of
0: business or the love of Broadway? Well, the business side all came secondarily to me. I started out as an actor years ago. And then uh, a guy I was working for, a producer, a guy named Jeff Moss, I had done a few national tours for him, bus and truck tours. And he, uh, he came up to me one year and he said, you know, Carl, you've done a bunch of shows for me. I'm sending out another tour. I don't really have anything for you in the tour, but you you kind of see how things work. You're a smart guy. I think you'd make a good manager. You want to be the company manager for this tour? And I said, "Uh, no, I don't think I do. And he said, uh, well, I'll tell you what, I'll pay you double what you were getting as an actor. And I said, you know what? I'm going to give that a try. And so that was basically from that point onward, I flipped over to being on the business side and here I am. It's so funny. That's Pretty much the same story about how I started company managing as well.
1: Someone said, yeah, you want a company manager?" I said, I don't even know what that is. They're like, nah, you'll figure it out. Don't (laughs) worry about it. So what did that mean to you at that point? Like when you started on that circuit, I remember the Jeff Moss tour. Oh, sure. So what was that like for you back then as a company
0: manager? What was the experience? Well, it was before the internet. It was before cell phones. You know, I did. I'd stop at lunch and call in to the office to make sure I had everything set for the day, that day and the next couple days. And then, I mean, if you can do those one-nighter tours though, where you're putting up a show, selling it, settling out, tearing it back down, and then doing it again every day, you can do anything. Because the logistics, especially at that time, too, like I had a portable file box, I had company credit card, and petty cash uh, little envelope, and that was it. And a map.
1: (laughs) don't even know what that is. Yeah, I
0: know. No Google Maps back then, but I used to be pretty good at reading maps.
1: So how did you get from that all the way to big Broadway GM? What was the, you obviously enjoyed the experience as a company manager enough to keep pursuing it.
0: Yeah, I I had met my wife back in my actor days, my my wife of uh, 22 years now, and she had a place in New York. I was just coming off managing a couple shows. I still was auditioning here and there, but I came to New York, moved in with her, and then I needed a job. So I lived right over cafe and Du at the time. Now it's AKA, you know, corporate apartments. But at the time it was a, a building, uh, you know, Kristen Chenoweth lived there. Lots of people, lots of Broadway people in that building. And I got a job working for Manny Cloditis in the Sardis building. So I lived at 123 West 44th and I worked at 234 West 44th. So I had my three minute commute in the morning and uh, I started, you know, answering phones and filing papers and then just moved my way up.
1: So, here's my one of my James Lipton-like questions. I want you to imagine you're in a bar in Omaha, and you saddle up and you pour yourself a drink, or the bartender pours you a drink, and someone next to you looks at you and goes, and who's never seen a Broadway show, and says, so what do, what do you do for a living? How do you explain what general management is to someone who doesn't know anything about Broadway?
0: Just a quick encapsulation is I always say my company works as a freelance chief operating officer within the structure of a theatrical business because each show is its own small business. We're just, that's what we do is we open small businesses. That's what they are. And because there isn't an institutional structure around Broadway, everybody's kind of a, a free agent as they put these new businesses together to compete against all of these other small businesses selling tickets. You need a population of people who supply not only the artistic components to the show, but the business components. So the vendors out there that exist, the ad agencies, the general managers, the group sales agents, everybody's servicing in a freelance capacity, this industry of small businesses. So my particular part of that is business affairs or chief operating officer, or however you'd want to describe that business management component.
1: And you're a little bit different than a lot of the big powerhouse GM offices around in that I noticed you like to keep your operation a little bit smaller and focus on one, two, couple shows at once rather than do five, ten shows at a time. So talk to me a little bit about how you established your freelance business and and the model there.
0: Oh Well, I I was working for other GMs for several years, like ten years. Then got a job with what at the time was Clear Channel Entertainment, the theatrical division there, was brought in as an executive producer for them. Primarily, the, the biggest project I had there was uh, the production of Phantom of the Opera in Las Vegas, which was a $35 million show at the time, which was a pretty sizable musical even now. Plus, we were just putting it into a building that didn't exist. What could go wrong? So I I did that. And then once that, there was a whole evolution of that business, which parts of it are now Broadway Across America and, you know, the John Gore organization, but it was bought or became Live Nation. Live Nation wanted to get rid of its theatrical division. So in all of that restructuring and selling off that they did, I was let go as they were not pursuing any new theatrical projects. But, you know, took the money that I got paid to leave and started my own company. And that was back in 2000, late 2006, early 2007. And that was one Viking Productions, did a couple productions on my own through that. And then another guy, Frank Scardino, who also had a small gm shop. He and I put together our businesses into Alchemy Production Group. Frank has since retired and so now it's just me.
1: And you rather you'd prefer working on just a smaller portfolio of shows rather than larger,
0: right? I I want to never be so big that I'm not personally involved, that I don't have something to do with the operations of the show. And I mean again, I'm I'm in an expansion mode. Right now, I mean, we're getting more projects, so I'm adding slowly some more staff, but if there's anything that I've ever learned is don't expand too fast because things can turn on a dime in this business. And until you have something kind of sure that's going to be funding you, be ready to shrink too.
1: General managers have to do a lot of things. They're general, quote unquote, right? Managers. If you could boil it down to one skill that would be the most important thing that a general manager would have to have, what would that be?
0: Accountability hands down is that you're entrusted to make sure that things are happening that they're happening right or if they are going wrong to make sure that you're aware of that and that you can address the problems or send the problems out to the larger sphere of people that you're working for and working with to try to fix them, because not everything goes right. When you plan a show and you make the budgets and the schedules and contract the people, it goes wrong a lot, no matter how good you are. There's always problems and bumps in the road. And some experiences you have, there's a ton of bumps in the road and you have to just say, hey, we're hitting a bump. Hey, this isn't going according to plan. Hey, we need to spend more money here, or we need to bring in more personnel. And you have to be accountable to the people you're working for to monitor that and and then find the best course of action through that.
1: What's a typical day for you as a GM? How do you spend your, your
0: time? It's cigars, caviar, and martinis. Oh, just like mine. <laughs> <laughs> See you at the shop later. <laughs> no, it's it's dealing with finance issues, accounting, negotiating contracts. You know, writing contracts, which we do. You know, in conjunction with attorneys. Although we have templates now that have been vetted by every attorney in the business, so they're they're pretty good. And also just making sure communication happens as it should be, and making sometimes larger decisions, sometimes smaller decisions, just on day to day operational issues that come up between. Personnel, finance, physical production. So it's it's a combination of all those things, and sitting down in a lot of meetings uh, with people to keep abreast of things or give input on things. It's a variety of those.
1: When you start the budgeting process for a show, what's the first thing you do? Like you start with that blank Excel spreadsheet. How do you how do you start? Where do you even begin?
0: I make a list of assumptions. I read through the script, I talk to the producer, the director if there's a director on board, the authors, choreographer, about their vision of what the piece is. I can I can read through and figure out how many principal actors there are. But it could be that we're doing a minimalist production on a pretty much bare stage, or we could be fully realizing everything out of a period piece, you know, done in the Renaissance. So All of those factors have to go in, so I just start by making a list of assumptions of, this is the show we're doing, here's the people involved, here's how long we think it's going to take, here's how many scenes it has in what period, this is how big a chorus we're looking at, this is how many musicians we think we're going to do a reading, a workshop, a regional production, and then the Broadway production. Put all those assumptions in and then I take and extract from all of those assumptions what each piece means budgetarily and also what the length of the process is because scheduling is, it goes hand in hand with budgeting. So bringing those together. Off of what we're all assuming, because i am that's my first sheet I give to the producers, is here's everything I'm assuming. Tell me if that's wrong or that's right. If you change an assumption, it knocks on throughout the budget. So I need to change the budget according to what we're all agreeing we're looking at. So that's the start of my budgeting process.
1: I'm going to tell you a story that you probably don't remember, but you taught me a lot about the budgeting process in like one line. Years and years ago, when we were working on Little Women together, remember this? I do. So, and we were talking about the budget, and and you said to me, I just don't see how the show is going to move. You were talking about the transitions and all that. And in that one sentence, I realized, oh, right. He has looked at this script and said physically, how it, is this automation? Is this manpower? And that's a big part about what you have to do is interpret the what's on the page into actual mechanics and dollars.
0: Right. And and it's I always think about budgets in terms of them being a map. I'm being asked to create the map of where we're going to go, where would this production is going to start and where it's going to end, uh, the end being a Broadway production or a tour or a Las Vegas production, wherever that that path is going to take us, I am asked to make the map. And you're mapping uncharted territory to some degree every time. But when you do it enough, you get to be a pretty good map mate. But I also, I also kind of put aside on that what they used to say in the pioneer days, is the map ain't the territory. So no matter how well I map it, There's going to be something that I didn't see because it's a year away, two years away, three years away in the development of these shows, and things change along the way. So part of the budgeting jigsaw puzzle is making sure you've thought through the contingencies of what might happen too. Like, you might need to expand the budget in this way, or you might be able to shave it off in some way, too. It's better at the beginning to plan for things that you might not foresee because everyone's fine saving money. Nobody's really fine with expending much more than they budget it, even though everyone generally understands emergencies come up. So, but making that map is... So that everyone can see, oh, great, we're hitting these milestones. Here's where we're going. Even the artistic uh, and creative staff for a show all kind of have to get on board with, oh, this is the map.
1: Were there any instances in your career where a producer was posed with a question of having to deviate from that map late in the game? Basically, you were saying, like, look, this is going to cost you more money. And... You saying, you know what, I created this map, but this is a good play. We should go over budget here. We should go off territory here
0: because the show will get better as a result.
1: Anything like that?
0: Absolutely. That happens in almost any show I work on. There will be certain points where it it comes down to a decision or a choice of three things we can do. And part of how I work with producers who hire me is I try to make those, I try to vet all of the decisions to get to the point of it's this, this, or this. And this costs X, this saves X, this doesn't cost us much, but it costs us in the weekly operating forever as long as the show runs. So we could spend $40,000 now to save $150,000 a year forever. That's a smart choice. It's not in the budget, but to do it this way is much better than to do it the other way, which doesn't have an instant impact, especially one-time expenses versus ongoing expenses. The choice is generally easy unless you just don't have the capital to expend on it, and then you take the longer term route.
1: You've been general managing for a little while now. How has it changed other than we now have cell phones and the internet? Are the demands on a GM in 2017 different than the demands on the GM in 2007?
0: I, I think just because of how information and communication flows so much more quickly, there's much more accessibility between all departments. So you, some, and, and most of the time that's beneficial. And sometimes it's not beneficial because there's certain things you want to share with the production personnel generally in sequence. So if your communication gets out of whack and So people start thinking too far ahead of time. Like one of the things about guiding a production is knowing here's what we need to do next. We don't need to think about this part. Don't spend time on it. Don't get distracted by that. Let's do this part. And so uh, sequencing of that and sometimes the communication can get out of whack. So part of the job is now controlling communications in a way that you didn't have to before between all departments. And information sharing, I mean, even on file sharing sites and everything too, which is great as a collaborative tool. I think creatively at certain points, it's not, you don't want all that information out for everybody to look at all the time. But it can get, you know, very easily out to everybody that you don't want to have that communication with at that time. So that's different sales, marketing, and Price manipulation of ticketing has grown, you know, exponentially in the last four or five years. To, I mean, there were, there was a time when you couldn't do any of that really in any nimble way. And now you can be pretty nimble about it every day. Yeah. That was going to be my, my follow up
1: question there is how much you as a GM find yourself looking at those numbers where, you know, general managers, you've designed that price scale at the beginning in consultation, of course, with your marketing folks. And now you can make these changes every day. Are you staring at screens? How much are you involved with the... Let's talk about Come From Away. There's a lot of variable pricing going on with that. Yeah,
0: we we manipulate prices every day, you know, down to various sections of the theater on various performances because you can see the velocity of how tickets are working. So internally, we have lots of reporting that we look at that kind of breaks down this more granular look at how tickets are moving on each given day, each given performance, you can't look at performances a year away because there's just no action there so it's really a short-term exercise of looking at performances in the next three four months seeing how they're shaping up because you know the sales curve it's always that kind of fast arc the closer you get to any given performance the more velocity you have into that performance so it's managing that velocity because even within that diagram, there's going to be little areas that aren't moving as quickly or need more help. So you can manipulate prices down, or you can change if there's a bad week, week in February or a week in September. You can play around with those weeks on a one-off basis to kind of draw ticket buyers in because consumers are getting more savvy about trying to find that pricing as well on the instances where you do lower prices.
1: You worked obviously for Manny and, and some great other folks back in the day. Any advice that any of your mentors gave you back then that you're still using today that you think about? Oh, yeah.
0: I mean, you know, I worked with a bunch of great producers and general managers, not just Manny Cloditis, but also Marvin Krauss, Alex Cohen. I mean, you know, a bunch of just old school guys, Jerry Schoenfeld, you know, and they all had pearls of wisdom that over time just pop back into my head when i see a similar situation i'll remember oh yeah that's i remember i've run into this before and this is how we fixed it so it, it learning from the people who have been around the business and learning not to panic at small situations that might be going on that's one of the things you learn as a general manager and one of the things i i try to do and take some pride in doing is i'm all i should always be the calmest guy in the room no matter what's going on no matter how inflamed everybody's getting you should be you should be the even head in the room fixing the problem.
1: So it's something I learned from the first production stage manager I worked with too, no matter what was going on, and it was a production where there was a strike, a hurricane, the lead he got a ruptured blood like everything he just was just the calmest to it all. The show will go on. It'll it'll all happen. Right. You've obviously worked with a ton of producers as well. Who's your favorite? Just kidding. Just kidding. Well, I won't make you answer that. Let me cover up this microphone. <laughs> But what characteristics do you see in some of the producers that you enjoy working with the most that you think make the most successful producers today?
0: Like, what do producers need? Do you think? Well, producers, uh, the ones that take it on as not a as a vocation and not an avocation, tend to you know they're taking it seriously. This is what they want it to be, their livelihood, and certainly. You can get overzealous about that too. I mean, you need to be able to roll back and forth with what the marketplace is sending you and what every day's particular events are. So I I think it's both really being devoted to the craft of producing and then also being able to have some give and take about what occurs, doesn't occur. Looking at plans that and planting seeds for what the next steps of a production are, or you know, killing plants that are growing into something you think is ugly. So, those two things I also think there are good producing collaborators out there. There's producers who know my strength is raising money, my strength is marketing and advertising and positioning and branding. And I'm not a good money raiser. So let me partner with somebody who is and we'll do those. I'll do what's my strength and keep abreast of what you're doing, but you do your strength and we'll work together. And there's some great collaborative teams that build out of people that know their strengths and weaknesses too.
1: You're an artistic guy as well. You started as an actor. Now you're the general manager. When you're in a show and you're managing a show and you can see creative it's going a little bit off the rails, perhaps, as shows are wont to do.
0: Do you get involved creatively? How do you... I do to some degree, although generally there's more people talking about the art of it than there are about the business of it. So I don't try to, unless something just looks horrible, lots of people are going to be out there saying, this this is bad, this doesn't work. They don't need me saying that, too. But... If producers want my opinion on the artistic side of things, I'm happy to share it. But a lot of times, especially now when you have, you know, 40 people over the title of a show, that's 40 people who are all already giving the lead producer their opinion. And that's enough. You don't you don't need me added to it unless you want me to be adding to it. I'll help to guide the business of it and help to keep the show as healthy financially as it can possibly be. In truth, one of the things I, I generally do now that I didn't used to do so much when I just needed work is I look at a show from the get-go, from the script, from the first meeting, and I think, how is this going to be artistically or financially, artistically great and financially viable? And it's... If I don't see a way that this show is going to resonate or that it's not, it doesn't seem like a show of this time. Maybe it would have been a great show 10 years ago. I shy away a lot more from those now than I used to. Just you learn through time if you're because doing a show is a huge effort for everybody, including the GM. So to spend your time on something that you don't really think has a fighting chance is You need to be more discerning.
1: So let's talk about that process with a very specific show in mind, Come From Away. So when you started to get involved with Come From Away, what made you go, oh, I'm going to do this one and devote the number of years? Because I've had your—and I know you've worked with the producers before, but I've had them on on this podcast, and they talk about how— What a difficult show to talk to people about early on. We're doing a show. It's about 9-11, blah, blah, blah. So tell me, what about it spoke to you, and, and why did you get involved, think it would be financially viable, and resonate today?
0: Well, the very first reading that I went to, which was just a closed little table read of the show, and the authors were there playing the music, and the way the storytelling was evolving in that show, and it changed over time, too, as far as, you know how quickly that show moves and it pops in and out in a, I mean, it's almost an edited way, like you would do, do film editing. But the storytelling for something that was so emotionally hard to put your mind around that it would be, you could you could even stomach the idea of it, was really just smart and different. And I thought different enough in the way it was being told, That it would, it would seem very fresh and new. And also because it did have the background of 9 11, but it wasn't, it wasn't about terrorist attacks. It was, it was something everybody would relate to in, in their own terms with their relationship with that day. And yet it was a story that, that was about how good people can be to each other as opposed to how awful people can be to each other. So I thought, which is always a great story. So, that's, that's what kind of drew me to it. I mean, other than, you know, working with Randy and Sue and Marlene and Kenny at Junkyard, they you know, who are great friends and, and great producers. But I, I really thought that there was something there. There was that kernel of a thing that could grow.
1: Did you jump on as a producer early?
0: I, I did not. I, I jumped on as a producer, I think, uh, between La Jolla and Seattle. Which was there was just great interest. Everybody who was seeing the show wanted to invest. So remind I remind me to do one of those shows. <laughs> <like that. Sorry. laughs> no, it's nice, but I always say on on this particular show, I didn't raise the money. The money raised me because people were just calling me and saying, "Hey, how can I get in?" I thought, well, if I've got all these people. I'll get you. It's funny
1: you say that because I joke about it, but that has happened to me on a couple occasions. And I say to people all the time that raising money in this business is one of the hardest things to do until you have a show that everyone wants and then your phone will not stop ringing. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about the, the, since we're on the La Jolla part of that, the importance of -of out-of-town tryouts to that show and just for Broadway shows in general today.
0: Well, in general, it used to be, I mean, even back when I was first starting in the business, people would just do a series of readings and workshops, and it would be a bunch of industry folks seeing the show and liking it, thinking it was a good idea, and then shows would get produced, plays, musicals that didn't resonate with people, like ticket buyers, who you're ultimately selling the show to. So... More and more and, and also, you know, commercial out-of-town triads were getting to be outrageously expensive because of everyone you have to put up for so long to mount a show in Chicago or Minneapolis or Houston or wherever before before you come into New York. So the whole regional idea, which has grown and grown, and there's certainly more major players in there, it really allows shows an opportunity to see if people actually do like it like people who are regular theater goers because they're subscribers which are you're you're shooting for that same group of people at least initially in New York as regular theater goers and our regular theater go- goers going to like my product it gives you a little kind of womb to work with and it's it's a great unless you're you know doing something that you think is going to be it, it's a huge crazy show and a regional theater could never really partner with you because it's it's too enormous of an idea or physically is too large to be housed there it's a it's a great option for letting you see people react to it as opposed to you thinking about how people are going to react to it
1: and now come from what just announced that it recouped
0: yeah amazing congratulations thank you
1: and let's do a little quick post-mortem here again why so it had incredible success but very quickly so why do you think, looking back on it, what what are the ingredients that made it financially and artistically successful?
0: Well, I think we we budgeted it very well. It's a it's a small show. A, another attractive thing, just business-wise, on that particular show is the size of it. It has low operating costs, no matter what we do, because it. it doesn't need a big crew. It doesn't have a huge physical production. It's 12 people on stage and eight musicians. So it operates at a, a very reasonable, for a Broadway musical, level of, of weekly costs. So as, as far as the... Um But the reason it recouped, which is something that we saw pattern-wise in each town it went to, because we played La Jolla, we played Seattle, we played the Fords, and then did a commercial out of town in Toronto. In every one of those towns, after about the first week of its run, it was just word of mouth. People came and saw it who were subscribers. Again, it was getting those regular theater goers in, and they you know, I think came in probably with the expectation, oh, it's about 9-11, I'm going to hate this. And yet it's not about that. And you walk out feeling great and feeling great about humanity. And I think the timing of that messaging, just in our current world and current political climate and everything, and social climate, is a message that people are grabbing onto. Part of what makes any show successful is that It has a time and a place for its production. It's part of when I talk to producers early on about any show, is what story is it telling, and why does it have to be told now? You know, why why are you reviving... Fiddler again. What's the compelling reason for reviving Fiddler or for doing a new show like Dear Evan Hansen or Come From Away? Or why do these stories need to be told and why do they resonate with people? And if they hit on those cylinders, you'll have a success. But it's the timing of it works out to be a very important component. And a lot of times you can't control the timing because you've kind of taken yourself down the ski hill and you can't, you know, You can't get off the skis without falling and doing some damage.
1: All right, my last question, my genie question, which is I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and thanks you for your service to the Broadway industry and wants to grant you one wish. As you talked about, you're a very even keel guy. You always have to be the calmest person in the room. What's the one thing that makes you irate, that makes you so angry, so upset about Broadway that you'd ask this genie
0: to wish away in an instant? Uh, a very basic one is that people aren't building more Broadway theaters. For an industry that's been booming for the last 20 years, there's just, there's nowhere to go. There's, there's so many people that have great ideas and great shows, and there's, they're just lined up. All those planes are waiting to land. I'd ask the genie to open up some more space in Times Square very good wish. I I have that wish and pray that every night, actually.
1: Uh, Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next time. Don't forget, get the to theproducersperspective.com. Register for the conference today. Only one more day left to save a hundred bucks.